Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, with a message entitled, Israel Goes to Egypt. Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 45, verses 9 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When most of us think of Israel in Egypt, I mean, we think about the cruel slavery that Israel endured for several hundred years. We might think about Exodus 1 verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, or Exodus 1, 13 and 14. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. And then later in that same verse, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The Bible has some very damning things to say about slavery. And much of what it says comes out of the experience that Israel had with slavery in Egypt. And yet, lest we think only of Egypt as the land of slavery, let's also remember that Egypt was the land of Israel's salvation. Had Egypt not embraced the family of Joseph, you know, it's hard to know what would have happened to them. And so slavery notwithstanding, let me say a word in defense of the nation of Egypt. And as I do so, I have a memory of a sermon on this very matter that I preached years ago. I mean, sitting in that sermon was a very dear and lovely Egyptian Christian. And after the sermon, he came to me and he said, you know, I have never in any sermon that I've heard, heard anyone say anything redeeming about Egypt and the Egyptians. I mean, it's nice for once not to have to hang my head in shame. Well, then what is there to say? You know, most of us are quite familiar with Exodus 1 verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And if you read that verse very carefully, you're going to notice that the verse doesn't necessarily say that the new king was another pharaoh. Rather, it says that a king arose who was over Egypt. And we know that an invading people once conquered and ruled over Egypt, and they continued to do so for about 100 years until Egypt was able to mount a considerable defense and throw them out and regain their kingdom. Well, those invaders were called the Hyksos. Now, we assume that they reigned the Egyptians from about 1630 to 1523 BC. We also know that according to Exodus 12, verse 40, well, let me quote it. It says, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now, one more day, you know, we can safely say that the year of the Exodus, that is, the year Israel fled Egypt was the year 1446 BC. Add 430 years to that, and we can say that the year Israel entered Egypt was the year 1876 B.C. That would mean that the Hyksos invasion into Egypt happened over 200 years after the Israelites had moved to Egypt. So why do I mention that? Well, I do because there are a great many good faithful scholars who believe that the king who arose that did not know Joseph was not an Egyptian at all. That's because the Egyptians had a policy of protecting and making room for Israel. But it's quite likely that a brand new king, a Hyksos invading king, that he was the first king that enslaved the Israelites. And then after the Egyptians repulsed the Hyksos, well, I think they merely carried on the policy of enslaving the Israelites. You know, it might have been that the anger over foreigners led the Egyptians to have no compassion on this people, the Israelites, that very large and vast people who had become slaves. Now, I say all that because it is important for faithful readers of the Bible to remember 
that Egypt played an essential role in protecting, defending, giving land to, and allowing Israel to flourish. Egypt became the birthplace in one sense, where the separate people of God gained their identity. And it might be for that reason that Isaiah the prophet makes a promise to Egypt in the last days. Isaiah 19 verse 21 says, And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offerings, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Well, all that to say that we need to read our next section in Genesis, thanking God for the mercy that God extended to his chosen people through the hands of Joseph, yes, but at the blessing of Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. There's something very positive about Egypt. Well, with that as a background, let's just review where we are in our account of Joseph. He has just told his brothers that he's Joseph and that they need not fear him. Even though they had sold him into slavery in Egypt, God had providentially moved to will these events so that many people would be saved from starvation and that the covenant family of Jacob, or Israel, would be saved through the hand of Joseph. And Joseph has just told his brothers, well, let's read it, Genesis 45, verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So for one remarkable period of time in the history of Israel, it was a Jew or an Israelite who was the key advisor to Pharaoh and who oversaw the administration of the entire land. Now, having said that, we now come to Genesis 45, verses 9 to 11. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Well, we notice here that it was Joseph who counseled his family to move to Egypt. And this, this move to Egypt, is the last scene in the book of Genesis. But it was Joseph that put into place this long 430-year period in the life of God's people. Notice how he does it. First, he clearly takes leadership over his brothers and commissions them as his emissaries. Go to my father, he says, and when you arrive, this is the message you are to give. You are to tell him that I am alive, and you are to tell him to pack up and come to Egypt. So we should notice here that up till now, you know, Jacob has given leadership to the family, but now Joseph steps in and he takes the leadership. He's commissioning his servants, his brothers, to put his wishes into effect. See, I notice that the brothers don't resist him. It seems that they've believed their brother. The position of leadership that he exercises was put into place by God himself. And we also notice that when we get to the end of the book of Genesis, after Jacob has died, well, the brothers come to Joseph and they appeal to him for mercy. Well, all that to say that Joseph never reverts back simply to being another one of the brothers. He remains Lord over Egypt and he is Lord over his brothers. And that order of things is a very literal fulfillment of what God had shown Joseph in his two dreams. You remember, God had shown him that he would rule over not just his brothers, but over his father as well. And all that to say that Joseph, in calling Israel to Egypt, calls his family to come and be saved, but to be saved under his dominion and rule. 
So in that sense, Joseph plays a messianic figure in the book of Genesis. You see, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, we are told that Jesus regards us, that is, his followers, as his brothers and sisters. But he never stops being our Lord and our God. He is king over us, and we are called to come before him, bowing in reverence, fully obedient to his commands. And that's the nature of Christian discipleship. I mean, to be a Christian is to be, at the same time, I mean, to be made one with Christ, but also to repent, to surrender all to him, for he is a great king over the house of God. Well, now, we we notice that Israel came into Egypt because it was Joseph who commissioned them. Notice also in this regard, he tells them, don't tarry. You simply grab all your possessions and you are to come immediately. And then next, Joseph directs where they are to settle. He says they're going to settle in the land of Goshen. And you should notice that this place, Goshen, is going to figure very prominently in the book of Exodus. So where is it? Well, the word Goshen is not an Egyptian name. It's a Semitic name. It seems as if Joseph took this word and applied it to a region in Egypt. I mean, you might think of it like, you know, London in Ontario or New York to replace Old York in England. Goshen was a district at the edge of the Nile Delta. It was an area that was favorable to herdsmen. And so it seems that Joseph has already thought this matter through. He must have decided some time ago that not only would Jacob and his family come to Egypt, but exactly which part of the land would be favorable for their livestock and what part of the land would be open to them with with a minimum of disruption from the Egyptians. But one thing is certain. Joseph has already arranged it that the family of Israel would not come to ruin. Indeed, he wants them to prosper. They will not only have a place to grow and expand, they will have a place to collect assets They will have a place to become a powerful nation. And I have no doubt that Joseph knew and believed in the Abrahamic promise that eventually the people of Israel as a nation would inherit Canaan. But this was not the time. They needed to be a nation and Egypt would be the ideal place to grow a nation. He would see to that. Dr. John's newest Bible teaching series, The Adventure of Prayer, is available to you this month on CD as our free ministry gift. Have you struggled with prayer? You know it's important, but have always felt your prayer life wasn't what it ought to be. Well, Dr. John wants to encourage and equip you. Prayer ought to be a joy, ought to be an adventure, ought to be powerful, and this five-message series just may change your prayer life. So call us today. Or if you'd rather listen online via podcast or mobile app, the series is available on all of these mediums so that the maximum number of people have free access to quality, trustworthy Bible teaching. To request your copy on CD, or if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call us right now at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. You know, there's a parallel between Israel going to Egypt and the infant Jesus going to Egypt. You know, when Joseph and Mary took baby Jesus to Egypt, they were fleeing as refugees. Herod was about to send his henchmen into Bethlehem where he would butcher all the boys aged two years and younger. 
Joseph had been warned by an angel in a dream, and because of that, he and Mary and the child fled during the night, hoping to travel south as quickly as they could. And when they arrived in Egypt, they would have found a flourishing Jewish community there. That Jewish community had lived there from 587 BC, having fled there from the days of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, and they were living in the Nile Delta region of Lower Egypt. Indeed, since the days of Alexander the Great in the 300s BC, the Jews had been ruled by both Egyptians and Syrians. And the Syrians had been overwhelmingly cruel, but the Egyptians had been kind and gracious. And we also know that for Jews living in Egypt, the Egyptians had allowed them to build their own temple in Memphis. And all that to say that the Egypt that Mary and Joseph ran to, well, it was friendly, it was welcoming, had a large enough Jewish community so that they could get lost in it, and Herod would never find them. That then parallels the time of Joseph when the Egyptians had also been welcoming of the family of Israel. If you visit modern Cairo today, you're going to find on the outskirts of the city, there are a series of caves. They're very large and spacious. They were built by Christians, and they are used for worship. At the entrance to one of those especially large caves, it holds thousands of worshipers, there's a rather large sign at the entrance. It's a carving of Mary and Joseph holding on to baby Jesus. And underneath the carving, there is a sign which reads, Out of Egypt I have called my son. It comes from Matthew 2.15. It's a sign which is meant to communicate that it was Egypt who had safeguarded the Christ child. And since Egypt has a very special place in God's history of redemption, so these Egyptian Christians were so proud of their heritage. And that, of course, reminds us that God uses nations for the purpose of carrying out his will. I mean, think, if you will, all the way back to Genesis 11, story of the Tower of Babel. At one time before the flood, evil people were persecuting the people of God, and they almost persecuted them out of existence. But now God had a plan to save his people in the future, and it was called the invention of separate nations. Different nations at different times would protect the people of God. So think, for instance, of Jesus' words to his own disciples, Matthew 10, verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, he said. That is, God provides environments where his people can find safety. So in a very real way, and for a great deal of time now, the Western nations have provided extraordinary protection for God's people. But like ancient Egypt, things can change. And what was once a place of safety can become a place of overwhelming oppression. And so getting back to the story of Joseph, we know that it was Egypt that safeguarded the chosen people, allowing them to flourish until, of course, there came that horrible history of the invasion of the Hyksos and the Egyptian willingness to carry on the practices of a cruel people. Let's go forward in our study now to verses 12 and 13. Remember, Joseph is still speaking to his brothers. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin sees, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. There are two messages here that the brothers must hear. The first is simply a word of encouragement and of reassurance. I am the ruler in Egypt, and I am your brother. Who else in the whole world would be more interested in your welfare than am I? And who else in the whole world would be able to do more about your desperate condition than I, the ruler of the most powerful nation on earth? 
But then Joseph reiterates the message that they must bring their father. He strongly commands that they must put the emphasis on the honor that has been afforded to him. Let my father know, he says, of the kind of power that I now have. That will help him understand that it was God who has done this, appointing this nation to be their place of refuge. And then with that, Joseph's speech to his brothers is over. But as we can imagine, they're left stunned. The shock, the realization that God has overseen everything, the incredible surprise that Joseph should not be holding a grudge, but that he had forgiven them and was taking the lead in bringing reconciliation. And now that the danger of the famine and the challenges of Canaanite culture, all of that was coming to an end. Now, you have in one sense that the brothers are staggered at such a revelation and they have no response. They're speechless. But it turns out that there's still one order of business that must be done. So we come to verses 14 and 15. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. See, up to this point, everything we've read in this chapter is about Joseph's weeping and about what Joseph has to say. And now for the first time, the brothers have a time to respond. And the first moment of response is as the ten watch Joseph and Benjamin in each other's arms, both of them now weeping, both of them simply hanging on. Up till then, that's understandable. But then something amazing happens, something that reminds us that the work of reconciliation has genuinely begun. Joseph now moves to each one of the ten. Our text tells us that he kisses each one of them. Even though the text doesn't tell us if the brothers wept, it is clear There is enough evidence in that room to indicate to them that the time of fearing Joseph is over. He loves them. And after that, finally, they're able to talk. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us what they talked about. I mean, did the brothers talk about their sins against Joseph? Well, perhaps. Did they talk about their families, the children that Joseph would now have to know, his nieces and his nephews? I assume they talked about that. They might also have talked about those missing 20 years. I have no doubt that's what they did. You know, I have a memory that's just a bit like that. You know, when the Berlin Wall came down and communism lost its grip on the former Soviet Union, my father's brothers and sisters were able to exit Russia and immigrate to Germany. You know, my dad had not seen his family for over 40 years. And so without hesitation, he and his sister and brother who were in Canada bought a plane ticket for each member of the family. I'll never forget that day. I had a camera in hand, and I watched my father pace back and forward at the gate, Vancouver Airport. Then the flight from Frankfurt started to deplane. First class came out, and still he waited, straining his neck. And then he saw the first one, his brother Peter. And they approached each other, and they just stared at each other. Dad said, are you Peter? Yes. Are you John? Yes. And then they gazed for a while, and they simply fell into each other's arms and wept, and they wept, and they wept for a very long time. And he did that with each one. You know, moments like these are moments of immense healing. If you've never seen such a thing, it's really hard to imagine. There is a depth of intermingling, of overwhelming grief with overwhelming joy and overwhelming amazement that the great God of heaven should have allowed such a wonder to occur. And for the family of Israel, the great God of heaven had indeed allowed such a thing to occur. Not only had he allowed it, he had orchestrated it down to the details of providing for a nation where the family could reestablish their commitment to the covenant that had been made with Abraham. God's purposes were being fulfilled. 
And as I think about what Egypt meant to the people of God, I think about God's promise to all of his people. Never will I forsake you, says the Lord. All those things that I have promised, says the Lord, all those things will come to pass. As Joshua would later say in Joshua 21:45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Indeed, it was so. My dear friend, my dear Christian friend, read to the end of Genesis 45 and marvel. Not one of the good promises of the Lord will fail for you either. If God has promised it, it will come to pass. If God has said that the evil events will all work out to your long-term good, grasp a hold of that and preach those truths to yourself. And if God has promised you that your sins are forgiven, then they're forgiven. And if God has promised that even though you die, you will rise again, remember that the one who made those promises is the one who is God. Take it to heart. God will always provide in Egypt. God will always provide a place where his promises will reach their fruition. Take it to heart. Believe it in faith. If you haven't seen it yet, know this, my dear Christian friend, your eyes will see it. The time will surely come. To God be the glory. John, this is a great message because I think it really reinforces the idea that there is a safe destination, that despite all the things that the world is going through and, and people always feel like they're not safe, it seems, today. We hear stories about that over and over and over again. We find safety in our in our relationship with Christ. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, you know, this Israel going to Egypt and, of course, finding there they are uh, uh, given the the safety, this time to breathe, to become a nation. This is God's hand. You know, Ben, as I, as I think about all of that, I, you know, I, I think about some of the verses in the Psalms, you know, that you hide me in the shadow of your wings until the storm passes over. And, you know, we have all those wonderful promises. And I think we need to cling to those. And also to know that even when we've gone through, you know, very difficult times, uh, God still has a place on the other side. Uh, where he will redeem all of these things. So to be in the perfect will of God is to be in the place of safety. God has never abandoned his people. Um, That's what this passage tells me, and I find myself deeply renewed by that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As a ministry team at Back to the Bible Canada, we'd like to express our incredible gratitude for your kindness and generosity in helping the ministry exceed expectations during our October One for One Match campaign. Thank you for investing in Bible teaching across Canada. Your partnership helped realize the entire pledge goal, so thank you. What a faithful God we serve. And please remember to request your free copy of Dr. John's new teaching series on CD, The Adventure of Prayer. The series is made available this month only to anyone who asks, and it's back to the Bible Canada's way of making quality Bible teaching available at no cost and investing in the spiritual growth of people across Canada. So thanks for all you do. And remember to receive your free copy of The Adventure of Prayer or to continue to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.